1: Dripping down science. The Naked Scientists.
2: What is the biological basis of getting old? And how can we prevent age related diseases? It's Sunday the 30th of September. I'm Ben Valsler, and for this week's Naked Scientists, I'm joined by Ginny Smith.
3: Hello. Today we're looking at the science of ageing. We'll find out how to stay healthier for longer and explore the different biological approaches to understanding how we age.
2: Plus, in the news, we'll hear how a new laundry additive could convert your clothes into pollution busting air filters. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered
1: by UKFast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.co.uk.
3: We talk about the science of ageing, but perhaps a more accurate term would be the sciences of ageing. Understanding age and age-related diseases involves research at every level from populations through individuals, their organs and separate cells and even down to the molecular domain. These approaches were brought together recently for a conference on ageing and bioscience hosted by the Babraham Institute just outside Cambridge and despite their different scientific backgrounds researchers of age and age-related diseases appreciate that it's not a purely academic problem they face. I'm Linda Partridge and I'm director
4: of the Institute of Healthy Aging at UCL. A very practical problem I think is the one that many of us are trying to address which is how to keep people healthy as they get older. The economic impact of the aging population on health services is just becoming completely unmanageable. There have been a lot of headlines recently about the National Health Service and the very complex presentations that are coming in with a lot of old people and really the inability of the system to cope. And, of course, the major burden of ill health falling on older people now, so that's where we should be focusing our attention to try and help people.
3: Some people, of course, live longer than others, in some cases much longer. So can we just look to them to understand how to live long, healthy lives?
4: One of the most interesting facts is that people who live to be over 100 centenarians are terribly average in the way that they behave. They're no less likely to smoke than other people. In fact, the world's uh, lifespan record holder was a French lady called Jean-Louise Calmont, and she gave up smoking when she was 119. So clearly these people must be very resistant to the effects and they're no more likely to take exercise, they're no less likely to be podgy than other people. They're a bit of a mystery, really. But they do seem to have some genetic characteristics, which, interestingly, are similar to the ones that make laboratory animals long-lived. So that's a rather nice ray of light that suggests that we really can use simpler animals that don't live as long as humans and where we can do experiments to try and understand the mechanisms of human ageing.
3: The genes of people who live long, healthy lives can only tell us part of the story. For Tom Mistelli, Associate Director at the National Cancer Institute in Maryland, the answers lie in a set of rare
5: diseases. One tool, one way to study human ageing is, is by looking at premature ageing diseases. So these are very rare diseases, most of them, where, where people age prematurely, very, very rapidly. And there's about six or seven of those um, that we know of. And interestingly, all of those have something to do with DNA damage and DNA repair. The advantage that we have with, with these premature aging uh, patients is these are all genetic diseases. So we actually know exactly what is wrong at the DNA level in those patients. So, for example, the, we work on a, on a particularly rare disease, which is called Hutchinson-Guilford progeria syndrome, This disease is caused by a single mutation in the genome. We know exactly what the mutation does at the level of DNA, uh, at the level of protein, and then we begin to study what happens at the level of of cells. So this particular mutation, for example, causes defects in the cell nucleus, in the structure and the architecture of the cell nucleus, and that influences the organization of the genome and actually leads to DNA damage and subsequently to that, then to ageing defects.
3: But can disordered ageing conditions really tell us about normal,
5: healthy ageing? And I think the answer for all of these premature ageing diseases is yes and no. So there will be certain aspects of the disease which are also found in in normal ageing, and then other aspects are missing. So for example, our favourite disease is HGPS disease. We see many, many of the phenotypes at the cellular level that we see in patients, we also see those in healthy, normally aged individuals. The patients, for example, they all die of cardiovascular defects, heart attacks, and stroke. And the pathology of those cardiovascular uh, defects looks very, very similar to what you see in a normally aged person. On the other hand, the patients that we're looking at, for example, they never develop tumors. We actually find that interesting. We actually use that now to ask, What are the mechanisms that prevent tumours or promote tumours in aged individuals?
3: The link between age and tumour growth prompted Jan van Dersen from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, to approach ageing from a perspective of cell biology.
6: Around the age of 45-50, chances of getting cancer increase exponentially. Cancer is is considered to be a, a disease of gene mutations they don't necessarily increase dramatically around that age. And so that doesn't really explain that, that acceleration. And I think that we're missing something. We have a missing link. Perhaps that missing link is the changes in tissues that happen in general during the aging process that become much more permissive for cancer cells or precancerous lesions that we're all kind of carrying to turn into tumors. So, for instance, as we age, we accumulate more and more so-called senescent cells, which are aged cells. What these aged cells do is they secrete growth factors that stimulate tumor growth, and then proteases that kind of chew up the tissue structure so that it's easier for cancer cells, once they are forming in a tissue, to actually escape the tissue and form a metastatic tumor, which is usually what's killing people. So that's kind of a hypothesis that is finding some traction right now.
3: Senescent, or aged cells, create a tissue environment that encourages the growth of tumours. And these cells are also known to cluster around the sites of damage in age-related diseases. So could removing them slow ageing?
6: We have shown that if you clear senescent cells in an animal that's ageing, as they are formed, you get rid of them, you can attenuate... A series of age related pathologies. And so the idea is if you can find a drug that can mimic what we did through a genetic trick in the mouse, that you might have benefits in health span. So, health span is the period of your life in which you're free of major chronic diseases. You know, we always talk about longevity, but nobody wants to live long if you're not healthy.
3: We're beginning to develop an understanding of the genetic and cellular underpinnings of age and age-related diseases. But if we are to come up with a formula for a long and healthy life, we need to know more about our lifestyles and the environment in which we age. Linda Partridge's work at the Institute of Healthy Ageing is shedding some light on the role of diet and nutrition.
4: One of the obvious features of these pathways that can seemingly ameliorate the ageing process is that they're the ones that respond to diet. They detect nutrients and they determine what the animal does in response. You know, can it afford to reproduce, mount an immune response, grow, that kind of thing. So given that they're rather central control systems for matching food to activity, knocking down their activity can have quite a lot of side effects and not desirable side effects like impaired wound healing, for instance. So I think the name of the game at the moment is trying to understand how these pathways can improve health during ageing and whether that can be triaged away from these undesirable side effects that seem to come along with it. So drilling down into these pathways, trying to find out what genes show altered activity, can we separate them out into groups that are controlled by different mechanisms and just target the ones that improve health? I think the jury's out on that at the moment. We don't know if it's going to be possible, but there's every hope, I think, that it will be.
3: Linda Partridge from UCL and before her, Jan van Dersen from the Mayo Clinic and Tom Mistelli from the National Cancer Institute.
2: Now, on average in the Western world, we live longer now than we have ever lived before. But a longer life doesn't necessarily mean a healthier life. So lots of the scientific research in this area aims to increase not lifespan, but actually increase health span. And it's quite well known that even with normal healthy ageing, we do seem to see a decline in our cognitive functions over time. That's the ability with language, memory, attention, etc. And the Cambridge Centre for Ageing and Neuroscience, or CAMCAN, was set up to try and understand how this happens and to find ways to extend our cognitive functions into old age. We're joined by Professor Lorraine Tyler, who heads up CAMCAN. Lorraine, thank you ever so much for joining us. Is it a simple case that no matter what we do, we're going to lose cognitive function as we get old? It's
7: quite clearly not the case. One of the things that we do know is the variability in both the cognitive functions that decline and their rate of decline and also the fact that lots of people uh, show variability in the extent to which their cognitive functions decline. So one of the things that we're trying to understand, and that will be especially possible if we can make the CAMCAN into a longitudinal study, is exactly what it is about those individuals who show preserved cognition across the lifespan.
2: So when we're talking about cognitive decline, I I mentioned language, memory and attention. What are we really talking about? What are the symptoms that we see?
7: Well, I think that lots of people would say that they see the effects of memory decline as they age. People think that they have problems with language when they have word-finding problems. But in fact, language comprehension remains intact throughout the lifespan. I mean, people can talk to each other and understand each other throughout their lives. Attention is supposed to wander, but I think the thing that people notice most of all is memory loss. This is not true for everyone. And the other thing is that the extent to which we notice what we think of as being declines is affected very strongly indeed by our stereotypes of ageing.
2: So if we expect that we are getting doddery, that we're having senior moments, then we're actually more likely to at least see that in ourselves, if not others.
7: Absolutely, yes. It also, um, these stereotypes, the negative stereotypes of ageing also affect our own physical health.
2: So almost a placebo effect, and because we expect to be losing our memory, we actually do start to lose it. That's quite remarkable. But when does this sort of thing start to, to kick in? I understand some of it is actually something I should be worried about. I'm in my early 30s, and already I could be seeing a decline.
7: Well, I think that people more strongly notice declines after about 50. But I think that's to a certain extent because, once again, we expect to see it. So... When younger people forget their keys, I mean, you know how forgetful younger people are, but we don't think that they're, um, they're suffering age-related declines.
2: When we're actually talking about the decline that we do see, so mm. when we have somebody who has come in with a sort of pathological decline to the point where it's become a hazard, do we see a, a certain pattern in brain activity? Is there a brain basis for the decline that we do see?
7: We work on healthy ageing, so at the moment we're not looking at pathological ageing if we do make this a longitudinal study, then we will be able to uniquely chart the trajectory from healthy to pathological ageing. But in terms of healthy ageing and people noticing declines, I mean, it depends on what it is. Most noticeably, I think, people notice decline in their memory. That's the earliest thing that happens. This does not necessarily straightforwardly reflect brain changes which are happening throughout our lives. The, the changes that take pra- place in the brain... The reduction of grey matter, for example, the neurons in the brain, the cells, and the white matter tracts that connect cell assemblies occur throughout our lives and at different rates.
2: We know the brain is actually quite plastic. It can adapt. It, if somebody loses use of a certain limb or, or part of their vision, we know actually the brain can adapt to make use of those neurons. So it does seem a little bit odd that we would lose a cognitive ability.
7: Remember that I mentioned before that there's a lot of variability in the extent to which people lose or show decays in cognitive functions. And one of the things that uh, we know from a number of studies now is that, the, as you say, the brain remains plastic. And this is revealed in studies using imaging techniques which can show us how the brain is functioning as it is carrying out particular kind of cognitive tests. And what we see is that good performance in older people is typically associated with enhanced activity in the brain and this is in the context of reduced neurons and white matter tracts you see a greater uptake in activity in other regions of the brain than those regions would have which would have been activated in young people and the argument is and the evidence for it is that this association between reduction in in cells in brain shrinkage, increases in activation, they're associated with preserved function.
2: So are we in a position yet where we can say that in order to preserve this function, you need to do a certain set of things? I know there's been research recently that shows that older people with a more active and, and larger social network, for example, were more likely to, to live longer and retain their abilities for longer. Is that the sort of advice
7: we need to be looking at? Yes, I think that's certainly one thing. Another thing which, for which we perhaps have the strongest evidence at the moment is exercise, cardiovascular exercise. There's quite a lot of evidence at the moment. It's not watertight, but it's emerging evidence that increased cardiovascular exercise helps to improve cognition. And there's also evidence that it's associated with neurogenesis, the formation of new neurons in the brain. And
2: anecdotally, we're told that if you make sure you keep doing your crosswords or perhaps learn a new language when you retire, these sorts of things can also make sure that we retain those abilities later in life.
7: Yeah, I think there's less strong evidence for cognitive training effects, but I certainly think... If it was me, well, I mean, it is me, I like doing crosswords and Sudoku and things like that, and I think that one should set oneself challenges and try to get out of one's comfort zone.
2: Well, they do say that you never improve if you don't get out of your comfort zone. Thank you very much. That's Professor Lorraine Tyler from the Cambridge Centre for Ageing and Neuroscience.
1: Laying the facts bare, The Naked Scientist's. Look us up online at nakedscientists.com.
2: This is The Naked Scientists. Today we are talking about the science of ageing and healthy ageing in particular and very soon we'll be coming to Michael Coleman who's been finding ways to preserve neurons when they would otherwise sadly be dying down. But first, we're going to have a look at what's been hitting the science news this week. So, Ginny, what do you have for us?
3: I have an interesting story here about eunuchs. That's men who are castrated as children. And it's been shown that they live up to 19 years longer than intact males, according to some research by scientists in South Korea.
2: I guess there has to be some advantage to it. <laughs> I think quite a lot of our audience have just crossed their legs. But how did they find out? Presumably they haven't gone around castrating people and then seeing how long they live.
3: <laughs> well, no. This study, which was published in Current Biology, was actually conducted using historical records of more than 385 eunuchs who lived in Korea between 1551 and 1861 where they served the royal family. And from these records, Kyung Jin Min and his colleagues at Inha University were able to find the dates when 81 of these eunuchs were born and when they died, so they could work out how long they lived. Um, and they found that on average, each of them lived around 70 years, which is considerably longer than the 50 to 55 years managed by an equivalent intact man living at the same time. And ironically, it's also far longer than the kings they were serving, who managed on average around 47 years.
2: Well, I suspect the kings were living quite an extravagant (laughs) lifestyle and possibly didn't uh, constrain their desires as much as they should have done. But why do we think this is? Why do we think being castrated is having this effect on lifespan?
3: Well, the researchers argue that it's likely to be down to hormone levels. So testosterone is a hormone which is mainly produced in the testes. So after castration, the amount secreted into the bloodstream falls dramatically. Um, Testosterone is thought to maybe have a negative effect on the immune system. So it could be that the eunuchs were better protected against infection. But it also causes aggression and competitive behaviour in both humans and other animals. So it could also be that the eunuchs were getting into fewer fights than their uncastrated counterparts and living less stressful lives.
2: Now, you said that they lived to an average of about 70 years. If If that was an average, then presumably there were some who were quite a lot older than that. What's the sort of maximum age they were reaching?
3: Well, as well as the living longer, as you say, the eunuchs were more likely to live to be centenarians. In fact, there were three centenarians among the 81 of individuals studied. If we compare that with Japan centenarians occur roughly the rate of one in every 3,500 individuals. So that makes the Korean eunuchs over 130 times more likely to be a centenarian than is average. So there does really seem to be something in the idea that reducing your testosterone could increase lifespan. But we still don't know exactly how this happens or whether only castration during childhood has the same longevity-enhancing effects. Some critics of the study have also pointed out that there's no difference found in longevity when castratos versus non-castrato singers from the same era were compared. So a lot more research is needed before we can say for sure that castration will increase your chances of living to 100.
2: I can't see many people <laughs> rushing out to try that, uh, that life-extending technique anyway. Thank you very much, Ginny. Now, laundry detergent containing a special additive could convert clothes into pollution-busting air filters, according to research published by the EPSRC. The additive, called CatClo, stems from a collaboration between the University of Sheffield and the London College of Fashion. It's based on on using nanoparticles of titanium dioxide to catalyse reactions that then break down the pollutants. Professor Tony Ryan, Pro-Vice-Chancellor for the Faculty of Science at the University of Sheffield, explained how the idea came about.
8: The problem was posed by a teenage girl. And the teenage girl asked me a question about, can we use ambient energy to do environmental clean-up? And it made me think about using the temperature difference between your body and the air. And there wasn't much there. And it just led me to photocatalysis. So I realized that, you know, people wandering around in the light, can we make the light drive a reaction that does some environmental cleanup?
2: Titanium dioxide is also known as titania and is widely used as a white pigment in products as varied as paints and paper through to foods, tablets and even toothpaste. But it's another property, the ability to catalyse reactions in the presence of light that allows it to purge pollution.
8: The nano titania has a very high surface area per unit mass. The reaction takes place on the surface and a photon comes in, excites an electron in the titania Uh, That then reacts with oxygen to split oxygen into free radicals. Those free radicals react with water to make peroxide, uh, which is bleach. And then that bleach oxidizes things and it oxidizes whatever it comes in contact with. Because it's in the gas phase, uh, the things that get oxidized first and foremost are in the gas phase. And so they will be volatile organics, your smell, and any airborne pollutant. And if you're in an urban environment, then the concentration of nitric oxide is such that it will take out some of the nitric oxide.
2: Photocatalysis is not a new concept. Similar chemistry, also using titanium dioxide, is involved in self-cleaning glass.
8: The breakthrough, if there was a breakthrough, was the realisation that the surface of a piece of self-cleaning glass is basically the, the length of the square of glass squared. Whereas your clothes, the surface area of your clothes is the surface area of all of the fibers. So it's much, much bigger than the area of the fabric if once you unfold all the fibers. My suit has an active surface area of getting on for 60 square meters. Clothing tends to be at the level where you want to eradicate the pollution. You you take advantage of the temperature gradient inside and out because that gives you a net flux of, of air. And the environmental cleanup agent is perambulating. Even if you have an architectural surface covered with with paint that's designed to take out air pollution, you still need the wind. And not wanting to make a pun, people make their own wind.
2: But how much difference could catalytic trousers really make?
8: A pair of catalysed jeans will take out somewhere between um, uh, a gram and two grams of nitric oxide out of the atmosphere uh, a day. Uh, If enough people do that, the numbers build up very, very quickly. So, for example, if, if half of the population of Sheffield were wearing catalyzed jeans, we'd be able to bring uh, Sheffield from exceeding the safe limit of nitric oxide, which is 40 milligrams per cubic meter. And currently we exceed it by about 10%. And it would be able to bring us below that value for the whole of the year in the city.
2: So a fully catalyzed person could make a minor difference, but reaching enough people requires a new approach.
8: In order for this to work, it has to be pretty universal because the amount that any one person takes out is rather small. So to take out the nitric oxide pollution from a single car needs about five people to be catalyzed. So what you'd need to do then is make sure that as many people as possible in a city are catalyzed. And rather than dealing with a brand of clothing, um, it's much easier to deal with something that everybody does, which is wash their clothes. What we're trying to do is get laundry manufacturers to come together to deliver this technology via the laundry
2: Of course, anything added to laundry detergent is going to end up in the sewers, so one concern is the potential to change the chemistry in sewers and in water treatment plants.
8: Sewers is really easy because it's dark in a sewer and the catalyst only works when it sees light. So if a piece of titanium dioxide sees light, then it's a photocatalyst. If a piece of titanium dioxide is in the dark, it's a lump of rock. Likewise, in the sewage farm... Two millimetres of water is enough to filter out a big proportion of the UV. And then the question is, what do titanium nanoparticles do to the bugs in the sewage plant? And that's absolutely something we're looking at.
2: The researchers are now working closely with a manufacturer of environmentally friendly cleaning products to commercialise catclo, and they hope to have something on the market within a couple of years. They hope that as well as the wider environmental cleanup, these additives will benefit people suffering from asthma and respiratory problems. And Professor Ryan also highlights one other, less obvious benefit.
8: And, and you know, for, well, for a Yorkshireman uh, like me, the best thing is uh, it's a licence to fart.
2: Professor Tony Ryan, OBE, Pro Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sheffield Science Department, making a fart joke on the naked Scientists as he tells us about the benefits of catalytic clothing, which will clean up all sorts of man-made pollution. Now, male DNA, almost certainly left over from a male fetus, has been found lurking in women's brains, according to research published in PLOS One this week. It's unclear what effect this may have on maternal health. Fetal microchimerism is the process by which fetal cells and DNA can escape the womb and get into the tissues and bloodstream of of a pregnant woman. But this work, carried out by William Chan of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre and his colleagues, is the first to show that these cells can reach and persist in the brain.
3: So how did they find out about this?
2: Well, they were looking at brain samples taken from the autopsies of 59 women, and they were testing them for the presence of Y chromosome DNA. So that can only have come from a male. And 63% of their samples were positive for male DNA, showing not just that it's very common, but also that it's very long-lasting. In fact, the oldest female that was positive for male DNA was 94 years old. Now, generally, the blood-brain barrier, or BBB, should keep foreign cells like these out. But changes during pregnancy can cause the barrier to become more porous than normal, and that gives these chimeric cells a window of opportunity to get through.
3: Does carrying around male DNA like that have any impact on the woman herself?
2: Well, that's a good question. And this was a very small study, so the impact of this is still very unclear. But previous research has shown that this fetal microchimerism is a bit of a double-edged sword. The cells may help to aid tissue repair and they may protect against breast cancer. But at the same time, they might also increase the risk of autoimmune diseases and inflammatory problems and actually other cancers, things like bowel cancer. And another interesting link is that women who've had more children seem to be at a greater risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. So it may be logical to think, well, maybe more of this DNA in the brain is going to increase your risk of Alzheimer's. But the researchers were really surprised to see that women with Alzheimer's actually had a lower prevalence of male cells in the brain, and in particular in the regions most affected by the disease. So... Realistically this finding raises more questions than it answers but it does suggest that this microchimism may have some protective effect on the brain so it's definitely an area for future research.
3: Well, I feel pretty optimistic about how that research might pan out. And recently, the brain basis of the human tendency to look on the bright side has been revealed by some new research. So scientists have known for some time that volunteers will take on board new information that has a positive message much more readily than negative information, which we tend to ignore. Some speculate that this good news, bad news effect, as it's known, might underlie financial bubbles. And psychologists also suspect that it accounts for natural optimism, overconfidence and poor judgments made during critical medical situations. So
2: do we think we know why this happens?
3: Well, it has been a mystery, but now UCL scientist Ray Dolan and his colleagues have used a technique called TMS, that's transcranial magnetic stimulation, to temporarily deactivate a brain region called the inferior frontal gyrus, making this effect disappear. Now the inferior frontal gyrus has previously been linked to self-inhibition and also to updating what we believe about ourselves and the world around us.
2: So we have people uh, set up with the transcranial magnetic stimulation, that's where you apply a magnetic field to a, a region of the brain from outside the head. But what did they actually get their volunteers to do?
3: Well, this study was published in PNAS this week, and the UCL team asked the volunteers to estimate the, their likelihood of suffering 40 different adverse events. So this ranged from their chances of developing Alzheimer's to their chances of being robbed. The subjects were then presented with data showing the true frequency of each event in a representative population. And while they were reviewing this data, TMS was applied to the subject's brains to switch off either their right or their left inferior frontal gyrus, or an unrelated control part of the brain. They were then asked to re-estimate their risk for each of these adverse life events that they'd considered previously.
2: And when they did this, what did they actually find?
3: Well, they found that inhibiting the right inferior frontal gyrus, or a control brain region, had no effect at all. Just as before, the subjects revised their estimations in response to good news, so when they found out they were less likely to suffer one of the events than they had thought they were, but they buried the bad news. Inhibiting the left inferior frontal gyrus, however, produced a radical rethink on the part of the subjects, with 60% of them ceasing to ignore the bad news that they'd ignored before. And examining this data confirmed that the effect wasn't because the subjects were less good than they had been previously at incorporating the good news. Rather, they were increasing their ability to take on board the bad news.
2: So if we want to make sensible, objective, data-based decisions about our lives, do we need to switch this bit of the brain off?
3: Well, probably not, because... As the researchers point out in their paper, there are positive benefits to regarding your metaphorical glass as half full rather than half empty, because emphasising the pros and ignoring the cons, as they put it, increases exploratory behaviour and reduces stress and anxiety, a factor that has links with physical and mental well-being. So in other words, this area has probably evolved to help us avoid depression and anxiety, and so be better able to function in the world.
2: So, being a hopeless optimist may actually be very good for you. Thank you very much, Jimmy.
3: Now, for a roundup of what else has been hitting the scientific headlines this week, here's Alan Boyd.
9: Bacteria and other debris can become stuck to catheters inserted into the body, potentially causing infection and blood clots, also known as thrombus, to develop. Now a group of researchers across several American universities and Sempris Biosciences have developed a technology that could solve this problem. The team developed a catheter that creates a water barrier on its surface, which prevents blood platelets and bacteria sticking to the device. Co-author Chris Luce explained the importance of the technology.
8: This work's important because there's a whole host of medical devices uh, that have complications in the body, whether they're related to bacteria or related to blood clotting. Uh, So we see this as a really broad problem, uh, and this is really a first step. We're showing technology has some nice, long-lasting performance benefits for reducing both this bacteria as well as thrombus over multiple months of blood product exposure, so a dual functionality and a long-term.
9: In laboratory trials, the new device had 99% less unwanted material attached to it than conventional catheters, even when left in place for 60 days. The work was published in Science Translational Medicine. The previously highly elusive element 113 has been discovered by Japanese scientists at the Riken Laboratory after nine years of work. The highly unstable and short-lived element was made by firing millions of atoms of a lighter element at a heavier one and observing the decay chains of the atoms created from the collision. However, it's not certain that the Japanese team publishing in the Journal of the Physical Society of Japan will be able to claim the discovery as other groups in Russia and the US have also made claims to element 113 and any new discovery must be ratified by a working group of the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry as Dr Philip Broadwith from the Royal Society of Chemistry explained.
8: There are other groups which may also have claims towards element 113, so it depends whose evidence the working group decides is the most convincing and which came first as to who gets to name the element.
9: A group of engineers have created implantable electrical devices that harmlessly dissolve after a predetermined time period, removing the need for further surgery to remove them. The devices use materials that are already used in the body, such as magnesium, which is currently used in the form of stents to keep arteries open, and a form of silk, currently used for stitches. The thickness of a layer of magnesium oxide covering the implants controls how long they function for, as this substance dissolves at a known rate within the body. Professor John Rogers of the University of Illinois, an author of the paper in Science and a member of the multi-university team, explained the challenges the devices needed to
8: solve. In implantable devices, many cases there's a finite time period where the
6: uh, function of the device has important utility, and then beyond that period, you know, the device is no longer needed. And so, if it's non-transient, that means you need long-term biocompatibility or you need some kind of surgical procedure to remove the device after it's served its function. So transients really provides a route around those two challenges, long-term biocompatibility when long-term operation is not needed, and avoidance of any kind of additional surgical procedure to remove previously implanted devices. And finally...
9: The memories of pond snails have been improved by giving them a chemical found in chocolate, green tea and blueberries. Researchers at the University of Calgary, Canada, trained the water-dwelling snails to essentially hold their breath while immersed in water, with or without the chemical epicatechin dissolved in it. They then tested the snail's ability to remember the training at regular intervals and found that those immersed in the chemical-containing water could remember the training for days instead of hours afterward. Co-author Professor Ken Lukoviak explained what was happening.
8: What's interesting about this is to get a memory that lasts longer than 6 or 12 hours, we have to actually have altered gene activity and new protein synthesis in the neurons where memory occurs. So this drug, this epidrug, what it does is it somehow primes the neurons to have altered gene activity and make new protein synthesis. And that's why we get this long memory.
9: And that work was published in the Journal of Experimental Biology.
3: Alan Boyd with our Naked Scientist News Flash, and the references for that, and all of our news this week, can be found online at thenakedscientist.com news. Now, the Antarctic is associated with explorers, penguins and glaciers, but the South Pole is also the perfect place for space research. The British Antarctic Survey is part of a collaboration that produces SpaceCast, a space weather forecast that helps protect satellites by predicting particle radiation from the sun. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson went to meet three members of the SpaceCast team, Sarah Glowett, Nigel Meredith and, the first voice you hear, Project Coordinator Richard Horn.
10: We're making a forecast right now. We're taking uh, information from various satellites and from ground-based stations, and we're putting that into a computer model, and we're forecasting up to three hours ahead what the radiation levels are in space for satellite operators.
11: Nigel, you're involved in some of the input that actually goes into making a forecast. What sort of things does this computer simulation need from you?
12: That's right. I'm producing models of the waves in space, which have an influence on the radiation belt environment. I've put together a database of waves from five different satellites, uh, incorporating data from approximately 16 years' worth of observations, to produce a global model of the waves in space.
11: When you say waves, which waves in particular do you mean? Microwaves, radio waves?
12: These are low-frequency waves at the lower end of the radio spectrum uh, with frequencies typically between about 20 hertz and 20 kilohertz. So they're in the audio frequency range.
11: Oh, audio. So does that mean we can hear them?
12: It means we can play them back and listen to them as if they were the natural waves as they actually occur. And I believe we have an example on the computer that we can listen to now. Well, that that wave that you just heard there was Whistler Mode Chorus, which is a particularly important wave which can accelerate particles in the radiation belts up to very high energies and that's one of the emissions that we observe.
11: So they're sort of in a way that's like particles are surfing on these waves. They're, the faster the waves, then the quicker they get here.
12: That's right. The, the, the particles themselves can actually surf on the waves and gain energy, gradually in small increments, but by surfing on many waves uh, over time, they can build up their energies to very high energies, up to the so-called MEV energies, which are representative of the killer electrons, and they can be accelerated to these kind of energies on the time scale of typically one or two
11: days. Now, Sarah, you're you're putting then this information into the simulation. There must be quite a few variables. Yes, I mean, we suddenly
3: need, for instance, the activity of the sun, the levels of geomagnetic activity going on out in space. They all go into the model. There are various other waves that interact in different ways and
11: drive the particles closer to the Earth. They're all different aspects that go into the model. And how accurate is it? How do you test its accuracy? Okay, we develop the model by running it as a simulation, not as a forecast. So there are periods
3: of time for which we have satellite data that we can actually try and recreate using the model. So that gives us some idea of how well we're doing. And if you look on the Spacecast pages, you'll actually see data from the GOES satellite and a model prediction of that data so you can actually tell for yourself how well we're doing and you'll see there are times at which we do well
11: and there are times at which we don't do so well. Um, And what are the time scales involved here? What's the time scale between effectively the sun belching and us feeling its breath?
10: That can vary. The fastest material can flow off of the sun and reach the earth is something like 17 hours but typically usually it's around about uh, two days, two to three days, something like that. And then once that hits the Earth's magnetic field and disrupts the Earth's magnetic field, that's when all these waves come into play, accelerating the charged particles. And that's a process that occurs inside the Earth's magnetic field. And that then may take typically a day, maybe two days, something like that.
11: Richard, you're a co-investigator on a NASA mission that launched only a few weeks ago to study the sun's influence on the Earth. How will this mission complement what we already know?
10: The Radiation about Storm Probes is a very important mission. It's going to measure very low frequency radio waves and uh, that's going to help us improve the forecasting system. We're going to access that data, process it and then include that into our models and help verify our models and actually improve our forecasting capability. It's um, going into a region where we don't really have very much data, so that's very important for us. And here at the British Antarctic Survey, we are, have a co-investigator status on the, on the mission. I think we're the only UK group to have that, and that's very important for us. And it's a very important international collaboration.
3: Spacecast Project Coordinator Richard Horn, along with Sarah Glawert and Nigel Meredith from the British Antarctic Survey... And you can hear a longer version of that report from Sue Nelson in the Planet Earth podcast. You can find links to that on our site at thenakedscientist.com planetearth planet earth.
2: You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and with Ginny Smith. Now this week we're looking at the biology of ageing and we're exploring new research into how to stay healthier for longer. Over time, nerve cells or neurons can become damaged and they can sadly die or they can lose their connections to their neighbours. We've already heard how when this happens in the brain, it leads to a cognitive decline with age. Now, Dr. Michael Coleman is a neuroscientist at the Babraham Institute, and he actually joined us back in February 2010, I can't believe it's been two and a half years, uh, to talk about the discovery of a factor that keeps nerve cells alive when they're damaged by a stroke or by injury. So thank you ever so much for joining us again. Uh, Before we go on to to look at the latest developments on your work, today we're talking about ageing. What does this nerve degeneration process have to do with ageing?
13: So in answer to one of your earlier questions... Loss of nerves and the white matter tracts in our brains is certainly something that is taking place in your age group and even in um, in, in people in their 20s. We don't really notice the effects of that until at least middle age uh, because we are born with... Uh, more than enough uh, connections in, in our brains to compensate for that uh, but the, the, it is an ongoing process it happens throughout adult life and certainly when you get into old, older age uh, then this can have start to have a, a very significant effect on cognitive performance and predisposed to age related disease so these are two very important reasons to understand this process
2: Do we know why we actually lose these? Are they only the result of, of injury or accident or do we naturally lose some in the same way that earlier we were here about senescent cells, which are cells that sort of switch off and stop dividing after a certain time. Do we see the same thing in nerve cells?
13: We're certainly naturally losing them all uh, all the time. The exact reason for that, we don't know. And that really is part of what my group now aims to find out. So we've worked for a very long time on uh, mechanisms that affect the survival of our nerves after injury and in certain types of neurodegenerative disease. And ageing, if you like, is a big new uh, growth area in biomedical science. Uh, If you like, we're catching up with the pensions and uh, industry and the health service in realising that this is a very important issue to deal with. So many scientists now are asking what can they do in the areas that they have already specialised in that can be related to ageing and how can they bring some understanding of the mechanisms in that area.
2: Now, when you joined us two and a half years ago, it was to talk about a protein that appeared to preserve these nerve cells. Could you just take us through how that works again?
13: Yes, many proteins need to be carried along our nerves to keep the more extreme uh, ends of those nerves uh, alive and functioning. And among those many proteins, we identified one that was a limiting factor for the survival of of those distal nerves or axons. We were able to do that because there is a particular spontaneous uh, genetic mutation in mice, a harmless mutation, that enables those nerve cells to survive for longer, and we understood how that was working. Uh, Essentially, it was compensating for the loss of a normal protein in those nerves when they are injured. So the idea is that if you had a stroke, for example,
2: you would be able to administer some of this protein that would help to keep those nerves ticking over until you could then restore normal function through surgical intervention or yes, whatever Yes, either be. to
13: administer the protein or to administer a drug, for example, which would boost the activity or block the activity of, of a related protein and thereby alter the outcome of the whole pathway.
2: So does it suggest that actually tweaking these genes or taking this drug could also prevent the age-related decline and not just the stroke or injury-related decline? Well,
13: that's really what we now aim to find out. One important point about research into ageing is it is inevitably a very slow process because ageing itself is very slow. We might think in terms of an individual research project, which is typically funded for three years. If if you're working in mice, which live for two years, for example, that's a significant part of that that research project. Um, So it does take inevitably a certain amount of time to do. Naturally, one direction that we are heading now is to ask what happens to this protein during normal ageing. And is that one of the key determinants of this age-related axon loss? again
2: when you joined us last time this was all being done in the dish so far as cell culture you were looking at you've just mentioned mice are we seeing a genuine activity of this protein in mice now as well as
13: in cell culture yes so this this is um, unpublished work so um, it's very important that the the work goes through peer review by other scientists before we announce the the full results but the early indications are looking to us quite clear that uh, what we saw in the dish in, in, in culture situations is indeed the case in mice yes now, cells do
2: have a, a natural way of dying off. This is apoptosis or programmed cell death. It's very important for avoiding tumours and so on. Are we increasing risks by keeping cells alive that sort of wanted to to degenerate, to no longer be alive?
13: Well, this is a very interesting question. Um, I think when I do a, a, a seminar to other scientists, uh, I think one of the most frequently asked questions at the end is how did we evolve a, a process through which we can rapidly lose our nerves after an injury? What could possibly be the advantage of that? And, and yes, that's certainly something we aim to get to the bottom of. One of the possible reasons for that is, is that if there is ongoing loss of axons within our nerves during during aging and, and and within our brains, that has to happen in a very controlled way. If it gets out of control, there is a serious risk of it damaging the neighbouring axons within the nerve. There can be several, many thousands of axons within a nerve. If one dies, you want to keep the limit the damage to that one axon and not take out its neighbours as well.
2: We've been talking about cognitive decline today, so I, I think we may be thinking mainly about, about nerves in the brain, which is, of course, just a mess of, of nerves and, and nerve connections. But presumably these will, will apply for the nerves that have incredibly long axons as well as for the nerves that run down the spine and run down into our extremities. It's not solely associated with the brain.
13: Yes, um, for a science which essentially only has to be observational, our understanding of age-related axon loss is really quite basic at the moment, the the, the international scientific understanding. And that's an area that, as a a very first step, we need to get a lot more information about which areas of the brain and the rest of the nervous system are losing axons and and neurons more rapidly. And when that happens, many axons in the brain are very highly branched uh, when you come to their extreme terminals. There are some that can have upwards of of 100,000 branches at the end. Now, there is some very preliminary very early stages of information that much of that loss occurs in the reduction of the number of branches rather than a loss of the main axon trunk itself but that's only been shown in some very specific areas of the brain and we need to understand much more about whether that's a general phenomenon throughout the brain or whether it's only in some areas. And just finally, only
2: fairly recently have we seen good solid evidence for for neurogenesis, the idea that as throughout our lives, we're still forming new nerve cells. Is this protein related? Are you likely to be able to encourage more new nerve growth or is this purely
13: protecting the existing ones? Yes, the understanding of neurogenesis has been one of the big stories of the last 10 years or so in in, in neuroscience. Uh, What we don't know yet is whether those newly born neurons contribute to long projections around the brain or whether they influence only the very local environment in certain areas of the brain. So whether this protein is actually involved in any growth of axons by those neurons is really uh, still unknown at the moment. Excellent.
2: So once again, we'll have to get you on in maybe another two and a half years to uh, see how that's going. Thank you ever so Thank much. You. That's Michael Coleman from the Babraham Institute. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Ben Velsler, and with Ginny Smith. We're joined by Professor Lorraine Tyler from the Cambridge Centre for Ageing and Neuroscience and by Michael Coleman from the Baberham Institute. We've had a handful of really interesting questions in, so let's see what you guys think of this. This is one that gets talked about a lot, and Katie K. Kins asks what the mechanism is that reduced calorie intake seems to increase lifespan. We've seen lots of animals where this appears to be the case.
13: Um, Do we know what's going on? There's been some very compelling evidence, really, in invertebrates, in flies and in nematode worms, that a reduced calorie intake is somehow boosting the cell's ability to withstand all kinds of stress so the the reduced, the shortage of nutrients for those cells is a stress in itself and by switching on the resistance to that it also um, switches on resistance to many other kinds of stress as well so that's the best that we understand at the moment that it seems to be some kind of general upregulation of ability to withstand stress.
2: And I think it's probably important to point out that when we're talking about calorie restriction we're not talking about not having that extra donut or having a Slightly smaller bowl of cereal in the morning. These calorie restriction experiments are really quite extreme, aren't they?
13: Yes, they are quite severe. I do know there are some human studies going on to test this, but uh, I certainly wouldn't like to be a subject in those experiments.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and we've also had a phone call from Mike. He called in from Suffolk. He says that he has a hip problem that stops him from exercising. Lorraine, you were saying earlier that cardiovascular exercise is very good for preserving cognitive function. Do we have any idea what he could do if he can't use his hips?
7: There are exercises that you can do using um, your arms and the rest of your body that will generate um, aerobic activity. So I don't think it's the case that people who can't move very easily uh, can't do any. I mean, it's more difficult if you, if you can't. But I certainly think that you can lift weights and do, do exercises with the upper part of your body that would help to increase your cardiovascular health.
2: I think there must be a range of physiotherapy things you could do. I've certainly seen Absolutely. people using, using hand yes. bikes yes. where you pedal along, but instead of using your feet, you're using yes. your hands. And, Michael, just coming back to you, when we're looking at cell lines, we get some cells that we're told are immortal. And how do we know how old they are and does it matter?
13: Yes, there, there certainly are. Uh, cell lines that we can grow in the laboratory, they are, they originate from from normal types of cells. They may have become uh, tumorous or cancerous in, in, in the body in some cases or transformed, as we call it, uh, within the laboratory. And after that, they, they can grow for very long periods of time. Yes.
2: So these are immortal cells and they're essential for research, really, aren't they?
13: They are essential, but they do have limitations. They They have A lot of changes within the DNA. They can sometimes have the wrong number of chromosomes. So they can tell us some things, but we often have to then confirm that in more normal cells. Thank you ever so much.
3: Ginny? And now we're going to explore a novel way to avoiding ageing. So here's Hannah Critchlow with our question of the week.
1: The Naked Scientist's question of the week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega.
14: This week, as the autumnal colds and sniffles take over, we consider an extreme way to rejuvenate our ageing immune systems.
6: Hi, my name is Casey Ferrer and I've been feeling
3: a little bit old recently. And I wondered, would a self bone marrow transplant
0: reverse the ageing process?
14: So, if we banked stem cells from the marrow inside our bones and then repopulated our bodies with these self-renewing and self-replicating cells years down the line, would this combat the ageing effect? First up, what happens as we age? We turn to a Dean of Ageing.
15: I'm Professor Tom Kirkwood at Newcastle University. Aging is complicated. We know that the uh, the underlying reason that the body ages is that as we live our lives, our cells accumulate a whole host of small faults, damage, affects uh, the DNA proteins membranes that make up the cells. So so basically the aging process is driven by things going wrong, cells become damaged and that also affects the stem cells of the body. It used to be thought that stem cells could keep going more or less indefinitely but actually we know that stem cells that underpin many parts of the body do themselves experience some form of intrinsic aging So in theory, one might think that a good way to combat some of the effects of aging would be to uh, replace the cells within the body that have been damaged by this accumulation of faults uh, with cells that are somehow less damaged. And the idea that you could use your own banked cells from earlier in your life is an interesting one. There are problems with that though, ageing affects all the cells and tissues of the body so um, simply rejuvenating one particular population of cells may be good for that group of cells but it's not going to do anything about all of the rest so it's not going to be a universal effect.
14: So Casey, self bone marrow transplants may not reverse the whole body ageing effect but it could be used to reverse a specific aspect of it. Bone marrow stem cells replicate throughout your life to produce your blood cells, including white blood cells such as lymphocytes, which act as soldiers fighting off infection in your body. Your immune system is one function of your body profoundly affected by ageing, which is why older people are more likely to succumb to infections. So could injecting yourself with your younger, fresher bone marrow stem cells keep the flu at bay in later years?
7: My name is Anne Corcoran. I'm a research group leader at the Babraham Institute in Cambridge, and I work on how the body fights infection. Older lymphocytes grow more slowly and make far fewer new antibodies, the proteins that recognize and get rid of infections. So a younger version of your bone marrow that still has younger stem cells to generate younger lymphocytes might help your immune system to fight infection.
14: In which case, should all under 40s be rushing to have their bones drilled in order to harvest their bone marrow stem cells and bank them to help boost immune systems later in life?
7: Taking a bone marrow sample is not a trivial procedure. It's not like taking a blood sample. Also, we don't yet know exactly what the effects of long-term storage of bone marrow are on its efficiency.
14: Instead, Anne suggests boosting the older immune system by reducing stress, getting enough sleep, having a healthy diet high in antioxidants, exercise and some good old physical contact, like hugs and handshakes, to release endorphins and boost the production of antibodies. With that question resolved, we conjure up a new conundrum from... Now, what was his name? I've completely forgotten.
6: My name is David and I live in Paris. I have a terrible memory when it comes to remembering people's names to the point that I can be introduced to somebody and forget their name immediately afterwards. Can you explain why? Thank you.
14: So, why is it that we can be so good at forgetting names. Send us your thoughts. You can tweet at Naked Scientists right on our Facebook page, email chris at com, or join in the debate on our forum which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum.
3: That was Hannah Critchlow with our question of the week.
2: And that's all we have time for this week. Next week, we're looking at tricks of the mind. We'll explore the seemingly magical placebo effect and we'll speak to a synesthete about what happens when the brain mixes your senses. Get any questions or comments into chris at scientists.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists or post them on our Facebook page. Just before we say thank you to our guests, I'd like to ask you a favour. We are very keen to hear what you think about the Naked Scientists. And so we have set up a survey that you can find at thenakedscientist.com slash survey. It'll ask you a few questions about what you listen to and what you like and what you think we could be doing better. And as a thank you, we're going to offer 10 people a £10 or equivalent Amazon voucher when we pick 10 people out of the hat on the 12th of the 12th this year. That's 12-12-12. So please do fill in our survey at thenakedscientist.com slash survey. Many thanks to Professor Lorraine Tyler from the Cambridge Centre for Aging and Neuroscience, Professor Tony Ryan from Sheffield University and Dr Michael Coleman from the Babraham Institute. And also thanks to our production team of Hannah Critchlow, Tom Simpkins and Alan Boyd.